Good afternoon. I'm Callie Crossley. Today, we're focusing on the stories that went under the radar this week. Joining me are Howard Manley, the executive editor of the Bay State Banner. Journalist and media analyst Marcella Garcia also joins me in the studio. Welcome back. Happy to be here, hey, Callie. Great being back. Uh, so uh, I heard uh, Carol Johnson, superintendent for uh, Boston Schools, uh, Howard, uh, talk about uh, the grade that she would give the school's performance and how she thought it well and it was pretty good she said you know she thought we're 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 doing better we're things are moving along uh, in the direction that I wanted them to move in since she's been here but now you have this story on the front page of the banner about how Boston schools are out of compliance with a federal court order well that's true and it's not as uh, harsh as it may sound um, some of these uh, court orders are, are are vestiges of the old busing days and those numbers uh, were based on the population uh, that existed at that time. So, for example, uh, it was required uh, by federal law that there had to be uh, maybe 25% black teachers in the school district. And so if you fell below that, you were technically in violation. So, again, that 20, the, the number I'm using is not the exact number, but they've slipped a little bit over the course of the last three to five years. And that raises an interesting question about uh, the population of the schools mm. being almost 80% minority mm. and the population of the teachers who are less than that. And so I think uh, the overall numbers, and I have to defer to my uh, city councilor, Charles Yancey, mm. who monitors this system-wide in terms of every department, and he says overall the school department is doing very well in terms of its diversity hiring. Uh, they're over the percentage. But in terms of black teachers and probably Latino teachers, those numbers are below but that's changing, and this is where Carol Johnson is right. And when you look at the new hires uh, that have been made over the last year, uh, that number is almost 45% minority. So it's one of those things that it's catching up, but uh, uh, Carol Johnson is uh, making progress, at least what Yancey says. Uh, Felix Arroyo, city <clears throat> councilor Marcella, uh, noted that, uh, because we were talking about the lack of the meeting the requirement for black teachers that, uh, when you look at the numbers for Latino teachers in the 125 schools, 12 had no Latino teachers and 16 or more had no Asians. It's mind-blowing. I mean, and I'm glad City Council Felix Arroyo is having his voice heard in this debate because, of course, this was not mandated by the, uh, by the court order, but it's very important. In a, a school system where 40%, more than 40% of the, of the uh, students is Latino, how are you going to close the achievement gap, and how are you going to deal with the fact that most of them or a large majority of them do not speak English um, and, and are immigrants. So I, I'm just very glad that his voice is being heard and, and is being represented in this debate. And also, Felix Arroyo has a background. Um, his wife is in the. Is, it's a teacher. His mother oh, is a teacher. I didn't know that. Oh. Yes, mm -hmm. so he knows what he's talking about mm -hmm. when when talking about school and the Boston public school system. So I'm I'm glad he's um, he's giving his input here. And, and and like Howard says, it's something that it's slowly catching up, but we need to see more happening more quick. And, and it's important mm. not to, 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 to throw in on this point about th this whole idea of having someone that looks like you teach you. Yes, it's about quality and yes, parsing right, sentences right. and all that. But there's always that something extra that comes with a person that understands the neighborhood that you walked in that maybe in part of this effort to close the achievement gaps can unlock that moment of discovery for these young minds to go on and try to actually go to school and participate and get good grades. It's a good point to make because a lot of people have an issue with, oh, he's Latino, you need to hire him, or just because he's Latino, we need more. No, it's a matter of, like Howard says, of having people identify with the people they're teaching and it, because it brings an extra quality and it brings an extra element of um, understanding the people that you're teaching. So um, it's not better versus, you know, worse, but but you need to bring that into into the teaching um, environment. Marcella, do you think that it also impacts because, you know, dropout rate is really a critical issue in town among these populations. Uh, so uh, having uh, Latino teachers, having black teachers to, to really say, listen, uh, you, you need to stay it. here. Right. And, uh, is that does that is that also absolutely uh, it's a major factor because having role models looking like you and showing you 
This is how, th this is what you can achieve. This is how you can do it. Let me guide you through this process. Let me tell you what you can do. Let me tell you what you can be. That's major, major, major. And it's this whole idea of uh, expecting the most out of kids as opposed to just sort of tolerating whatever behavior they come into school with. And so I know, and, and back in the day, we had teachers that were not afraid of telling you what you had to do that day. <laughs> oh, even <laughs> <laughs> your parents. Uh, yes. <laughs> I want to just bring up one more thing on this uh, on this particular story, and that's the Black Educators Alliance has stepped in to say uh, that they are concerned about recruiting. That I guess the recruiting efforts have been stepped up, and that. They're collaborating with UMass Boston, Wheelock College, Teach for America, all of those places. But the Black Educators Alliance are saying, hey, uh, we need to be particular about how we recruit. Well, you have that. And then you also have the retention policy. Um, and, and then you just have the bureaucracy of the school system. I thought that was one of the more amazing things that it takes nine signatures to, to hire somebody. Yeah, that was kind of amazing. And you just look at that. and, you, and But under that system, they had even more blacks. And Latinos as teachers before there's new rules. So I, it just seems that reform is an overused word, but it definitely needs some uh, uh, scrutinizing on the hiring practices. All right, moving on. Uh, I this is definitely an under the radar story for me, even though it's right out in front, and that is that uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, known around here as MIT, uh, named a new president. Okay, well I kind of maybe knew that, but I didn't pay attention, Marcella, to the guy's name or his background or whatever, and this is a real big de deal in the Latino community. Correct, yeah. MIT mm -hmm. named its first uh, non-native English speaker and the first person to um, come from Latin America, a Venezuelan guy, Rafael Reif, and it was major. You're absolutely right. It was completely under the radar. Here was reported that MIT names a new president, but in Latin America, it made Huge, huge news because it's the first time that yeah. right. Yeah. right, and and this is a guy who's been in the in MIT working in that institution for a while now. Uh, he was a provost, and also he was the guy behind or was working in this project for a while in the um, edX project, uh, the joint venture, the <laughs> joint online education uh, venture with uh, Harvard. Mm -hmm. So he has been he's a cure funds for that. So he's been. In MIT, not in, in the front face, but now he's going to be the face of MIT as a president. So that's huge, huge, huge. It's going to obviously in Latin America, this was um, seen as a as uh, like we were talking about teachers and Latino mm -hmm. students. It's the same parallel. Mm -hmm. You know, you can in Latin America, you see people coming this far. It's it's major. It's it's really amazing and a big deal. So. It, it and, and locally, use. it got kind of a big response too in the in the Latino, in the Latino community yes, as well, because yes. there is a a growing uh, Venezuelan community mm -hmm. here in Boston, and mm -hmm. and seeing Venezuelans advance, and not just Venezuelan but Latinos, is you know a major so source of pride in the Latino community. So that's yeah, good and news. And you look at these uh, major colleges; uh, uh, his hiring comes on the heels of uh, MIT having the first uh, woman. Uh, president. Right, exactly. And so, Susan Hockfell. Right, yeah. okay, right. Yeah. And so uh, mm -hmm. uh, her tenure was, I don't know how long it was. Eight she years. Looked, eight years, mm -hmm. okay, so mm -hmm. almost a decade. Mm -hmm. And so here's, you got a Venezuelan brother running <laughs> MIT. You just, you know, science and technology, that's just sort of defies what the stereotype exactly. has been. Mm -hmm. And so that's just a positive thing. It's a deserved thing because he raised, what, $30 million? Right, for, he, for the online education venture with with Harvard, which was also very good news in the Latino community as well, because MIT, you got, you, you know, MIT, of course, here in the U.S. has this aura of being the institution along with Harvard as well, and we're home to that here in Boston. But in, in Latin America, is has this completely... It's even bigger. Yes. Yeah. You know, it's, like, you know, it's yeah. almost wow. like yeah. science yeah. fiction, yeah. you know? Yeah. But right. MIT is seen as something that you just dream about. Mm. And this is what uh, Rafael Reeve was talking about. Like, this is one of his dreams, and he made it mm. uh, coming from Venezuela. So it's it's amazing. It's good news, definitely. Oh, well, that's it'll be interesting uh, as we see the uh, interesting mix, as Howard pointed out, in uh, leaders around uh, the region, really, uh, uh, presidents of, of universities. All right, uh, Howard, Roxbury's, Groups are trying to get a cultural district in Dudley Square and Grove Hall. I didn't realize that there were certain kinds of uh, barometers around how a cultural district comes to be. I didn't know this either <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> until I had the story from uh, again, Ken Cooper comes up with these. Uh, and it's, right now it's just in the planning stages, but there is a cultural dish, district designation 
that uh, maybe there are three or four in the state right now. They usually include like the Museum of Fine Arts and all that sort of stuff. Um, in Roxbury, there's some culture. We don't know if it's a contiguous uh, 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 geography because if you can go to one sort of place where the African-American Museum is, it's way away from Dudley Square. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to put some of those places in between Dudley Square and the museum as a cultural district. But they're talking about all this. It's important to note that there's uh, no state money attached to this. Mm, this okay. is a just a designation. Um, I think it's a good preemptive uh, strike for the future of Dudley Square as they're building and rebuilding all these uh, new, uh, uh, the Ferdinand building and all that. So I think it's a good move to start the discussion now and just see. And it's a great PR opportunity if you mm-hmm. if you um, if you ask me because really this is a potential amazing opportunity for some businesses to to get together and say hey this is what we have here and even I I went to the uh, African American Museum what is it called the uh, Museum of the National Center of African American Artists right mm-hmm. a few years ago a couple of years ago they held an exhibit I think it was called Merengue mm-hmm. and it was about Dominican Republic Dominican Republic art and some Latino it, it was it was also a big big exhibit it was it came from I don't know I can't remember from New York mm-hmm. so for the first time ever I went to this center and I was impressed mm-hmm. I was impressed that this thing existed and I didn't know about so a imagine oasis right yeah. imagine the what, what they can hear. do with right. it right. in terms of public relations to you know bring more people to to Roxbury so I think it's a great opportunity it's to be, you know, somebody should take that and run with it. Right. It definitely would have an impact on tourism because so many people come to the city and they're looking for those designated districts. Right. And uh-huh. I don't know if it's going to be a district per se, but I know mm. in Cambridge you have different houses. For right. example, W.E.B. Du Bois' house where he stayed when he was a freshman is on Spark Street. There's a little plaque in front of the house. Does that mean? Well, I don't know. But it's mm. nice to know mm. when you're walking around. Same thing in, in Roxbury. You have a place where uh, uh, Martin Luther King preached. Uh, you have where Malcolm X uh, hung out. Uh at a minimum, plaques are uh, definitely warranted, and, uh, and people it, don't know about it. It's right. a, it's a, it's huge. Anytime anyone is talking about culture in Roxbury, we love that. <laughs> right. Uh, we should note that your piece uh, quotes uh, extensively Derek Lumpkins, who's the executive director of Discover Roxbury, and uh, Discover Roxbury sponsors guided tours and Roxbury Open Studios. So they're already on the path of trying to bring right. people's attention to the cultural aspects of the area. So that's a good thing. All right, much more to talk about. I'm Callie Crossley, and we're talking about the stories that went under the radar with journalist and media analyst Marcella Garcia and Howard Manley of the Bay State Banner. You're listening to WGBH Boston Public Radio. This program is made possible thanks to you and the Boston Speaker Series, bringing to Boston national and global figures from around the world. The series returns to Symphony Hall for seven evenings. More information online at bostonspeakerseries.org. And SNH Construction. Up until about five or six years ago, we didn't do much marketing at all. Doug Hanna, partner. But we found the value in getting our message out there and more specifically uh, getting our name out through WGBH Radio. You know, we just respect WGBH as an organization, always have. To learn how WGBH can benefit your business, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. So you were asking for how much money initially? <laughs> 35000 And how much money did you get? Oh, 550000 I'm Kara Miller. From websites like Kickstarter, where individuals pool resources to fund big projects, to companies like Innocentive that are open-sourcing problems to be solved, we look at the power of crowdsourcing on Innovation Hub. Saturday morning at 7, here on 89.7 WGBH. Hi, my name is Maya, and I'm a WGBH sustainer. Sustainers like Maya break their gifts down into monthly installments that automatically renew. That helps 89.7 plan better, and better plans means fewer fundraisers. And that's why Maya is responsible for... This hour of programming coming to you fundraiser-free. Thanks, Maya. Yeah, you too. Join Maya by supporting 89.7 as a sustainer online at WGBH.org. Grandpa, he threw the first ball out 
at Fenway Park. The very first, first ball out. Ever. Ever. <laughs> 100 years of legend and history of Fenway Park. Fridays on WGBH's Morning Edition. I'm Callie Crossley. If you're just tuning in, we're looking at the week's news, local news that went under the radar. Joining me to talk between the headlines are Howard Manley, the executive editor of the Bay State Banner, and Marcella Garcia, a journalist and media analyst. So, Howard, again, in the banner, you've got an interesting piece about a, an election reform package that has already passed uh, in the State House. I under the radar for me, didn't know. Well, there's so many different things that are going on in terms of uh, not only locally but nationally in terms of protecting voter rights. And it seems that it gets lost in all these partisan discussions. But meanwhile, uh, there's a little bill that passed in the state uh, House legislature uh, that uh, has a number of different components. Probably the one most interesting one is that uh, when young uh, kids register uh, for their license, they can uh, fill out their registrations for a uh, 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 voting and they'll be permanently uh, entered into the system and they can sort of do that. Um, but anything that increases the efficiency. The other part that uh, the mass vote uh, people were talking about was the sort of audit that they will do after every election to make sure that in specific uh, voting precincts and uh, in different elections uh, that everything was as efficient as it could have been. So that's kind of a good responsive government to the basic uh, responsibility that we all have, which is to vote. Some of the stuff that is a part of this uh, uh, law or, or a bill really speaks to what they're calling moderniz- modernization. Okay, <laughs> it's easy for me. Easy for me to say. Okay, so it's easier it's for people. Yes, <laughs> easier for people to register to vote. Uh, increasing the security and integrity of the vote counting process that you. Uh, just uh, talked about, and then trying to get these new young voters. I just want to make clear that your piece makes clear that when we say young voters, we're talking 16 and 17-year-olds, right. right? You know, not like 20 and 24, no, you know, no, yeah. No. To I mean, me, it, that's significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, to have people as young as 16, 17-year-olds involved in the in the voting process, what this bill will do is they will this will allow them to pre-register to vote so that when they uh, turn 18, they will be automatically registered. And, and that's efficient. That's as efficient as we, we're seeing. So any any bill that does that, it's, it's major. Now, this has to be passed in the Senate still mm. and signed by the governor's bill. Probably that's why we haven't really read anything mm. about it. But but it's it's um, it would be uh, and it's hard to believe, too, like you say, that it's the uh, the the most um, significant uh, reform to this law in 20 years, like Mass Vote says, and, and a shout out to Mass Vote because this is an organization that has been working for grassroots, a long time. grinding right. it out, right. making little incremental improvements to your voting experience, and also on behalf of minorities, Latino mm-hmm. voters, That's and, exactly and right. uh, Black voters. So, so great news. Well, here's the thing about it that I find this very interesting. That this has this passed in the House with virtually no upset, given the political tension right. around voting process. I mean, Marcella, to you. As you know, uh, Florida Governor Rick Scott is on the hot seat right now for having introduced this purging the roles of people who allegedly are fraudulent or whatever. And, you know, he's been told by the Justice Department to stop that. When they looked at, speaking of audits, the numbers that were the people who had been purged, most of them had a Latino surname. Like, no kidding. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And this is why. I um I wanted to give a shout out to Mouseball because they really are taking care of uh or making sure that Latino voters and black voters aren't uh not only discriminated but really that they they could uh, participate in the um in the in the voting process and and this is just one of the things that they're working on and going to that to that point Mouseball I think for lo- for the longest time has been pushing a a legislation that would allow um, voting day re- registration. Same, same day, day. Yeah, right, same right, day right. Registration, which right? Right. Which so, Minnesota's had forever. Right. Thank you. Yes. No problem. Yeah. No pro- right. Yeah. Which would obviously uh, eliminate a lot of the barriers that Latino voters have because, as we all know, Latinos have a, a higher rate of mobilization. Like they, they um, move very, you know, much more frequently than other voters. So they don't get, you know, for, it's just another barrier to vote. Right. And it, that this would be eliminated with uh, same day registration. So, um, 
I'm so glad that this organization, again, is, is working on, on a minority's behalf um, so that we don't have that situation in Florida. Yeah, and, yeah. and, and the other main one that really gets uh, little credit over the years has been uh, just the, uh, I guess there's a term for it, transliteration, where, where they in the, the voter ballots are translated into different languages. Yes. So that's more inclusive. We want to encourage people to vote, even if you don't speak English all that well, hmm. but... Please. And mind you, not only for Latino or Asian voters, that was a major right. thing in Chinatown recently. Thing. Right. So. Uh, and again, happening in Florida also is that uh, Governor Scott eliminated um, uh, pre-registration. I mean, uh, same-day registration, and that just went away. Right. So I mean, there's a lot of that. And this list, our neighbors very close here, Rhode Island, have passed a voter ID law. So this is interesting to me that this bill has passed and we haven't heard much pushback, which I think, you know, for some of the components of it, are very controversial in right other now. parts of the country mm-hmm. right. right now. Thank just, God we live in Massachusetts. I'm just saying. All right. Well, we'll I'll be, <laughs> it's not clear when it's supposed to come to the Senate or when it'll get. Right. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I assume that we'll hear something from mass votes since they're keeping an eye on it. Right. All right, Marcella. Now, some months ago we talked about, and I even did a huge follow-up piece of uh, uh, after an article was written about Lawrence Heist, uh, La- Lawrence, the city of Lawrence and all of its issues in Boston Magazine became a big to-do, a lot of controversy. And now uh, a piece in the New York Times, actually written by uh, someone who worked at WGBH, just bid good, so she knows the story well. Mm-hmm. Um, it just, in a larger context, reflecting back some of what was in that article, some of what, but what I found very interesting is that the groups of people who were angry about the characterization of the city have now moved on to start implementing some things right. uh, to change, uh, really the, perception. change the, face, the perception. Right. Yes. Which mm-hmm. is what was yeah. interesting about this story, because yeah. when I saw the headline, and this is something that kind of flew under the radar, because the mm-hmm. story has been dead for, yeah. for a couple of weeks now, yeah. uh, more Mont- than a couple of weeks. Yeah, yeah. Right. So uh, I was like, well, what is this, gonna, what is this story going to bring to the discussion right now? But it's exactly that. The, the group, We Are Lawrence, has stayed... Definitely active, definitely um, uh, decided, I guess, in staying non-political and just moving to changing the perception and the focus of Lawrence being a damned city, as mm-hmm. the uh, Boston Magazine article portrayed them. And they have been actually doing things. One of the things that I learned about that was not definitely reported uh, in, in the Lawrence media or uh, the state media is uh for example, the the cash mobs that they're organizing to help some of the local businesses. They staged a cash mob in which they were inviting residents and people from neighbor neighborhood towns uh, to just go to this hardware store and buy. And and the the owner of the store reported that uh, they they were selling three times the rate of a normal day. So that's that's news um, to me anyway yeah. about well, a city that's was condemned or had been condemned. <laughs> yeah. Well, the exact quote was, most God-forsaken city in Massachusetts. <laughs> right. That's what Boston then, Magazine wrote. Right, yeah, yeah. exactly. And then um, it's, this story also uh, called said the uh, Ellis Island of the Mary Valley. <laughs> <laughs> Again, you know, tells you about the history of immigrants coming to the city. And now it's 73, almost 73% Latino. Um, so it, it, it's a great. It's about the great things happening in Lawrence, and 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 yes, the Boston Magazine article was completely true. You know, some might say, as we argued here, that it was probably one-sided, mm-hmm. but there were good things to be said about Lawrence. And in fact, there's a lot of stories that haven't been reported. I found out about this, um, you this youth-led effort called um, "What's Good in the Hood," and it's completely. <laughs> Social, like it's it's based internet based, oh, led really? by youth uh-huh. um, in English, and it's first, second, third generation Latinos, high school students. It's about this young woman that won a social entrepreneurship award, and with the money, she decided to fund a newspaper mm. that would just cover positive stories about Lawrence. Wow! So it's mm. they have a Tumblr site, and and they post pictures, they post you know videos, and and so that to me that's the the great story about we are Lawrence or the whole movement. Uh, you see youth getting involved in the fate of their city, and you see them reporting on the news and what's good in the hood, literally. Yeah. So hopefully we'll see some stories like that uh, being reported in the media because ultimately we just want that to advance. And, and the schools, too, the school system, by the way, was just the same week that the New York Times article was published in uh, late May. 
it was announced that the um, you know how the school system in in Lawrence was placed under receivership. receivership. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. They the state uh, commissioner of education and the receiver Jeffrey Riley announced a turnaround plan for the schools. So again, that's also news under the radar. Yeah. But it shows you that it's advancing. Right, um, moving in the moving in another along. different. Right. Well, what I think also, uh, if I may, uh, Howard, it seems to me that there, with these kinds of stories and efforts that Marcella has articulated, there is an effort to uh, separate Willie Lantigua, the mayor, and all of his issues from the city and the people. Well, that's exactly <laughs> right, and it's the only strategy that you can have because in his tenure, and it was just praised all around when he. Uh, uh, was elected the first Latino in, in Lawrence in a city that's uh, 73% Latino. And he has not been an effective leader in solving some of those chronic problems, namely crime, namely the education system, and the economic base. Now, to the extent that he could do that in three, four years, I don't. but it doesn't help mm-hmm. when you're under indictment, mm-hmm. you're under <laughs> no, <it> investigation. <laughs> right. You know, you got crazy recall efforts that almost win, that, but all the, you know, so you have this, hor- and, and so Lantigua, I don't know how long he can last in that particular job, given the pressure that he's under for reform by the citizenry. And I remember when the Boston Magazine story came out, it was like, how do you, if you live in Lawrence, you can't let somebody come in your neighborhood mm-hmm. and just say anything. Mm-hmm. The most God-forsaken place in Massachusetts. In <laughs> fact, you know, to your point about not involving or not getting political, the um, you can argue that you cannot separate politics from this, citizen, this citizen-driven effort. As the um, Eagle Tribune, the local paper, put it in an editorial, they were literally calling out the we are Lawrence group by staying a political. How can you not mm. be uh, more political and say, well, you know, because it's definitely tied to the fate of the city. Mm. Who is the leader of the city? Who is going to lead? Who are you proposing? And so that's a debate that's there. You yeah, know? Right, and and right. it's going to continue. But unless... We, um, th- th- unless the uh, recall effort that you have obviously here discussed, um, there's some recall efforts that have been uh, made to, um, you know, oust Mayor Lantigua. Unless that's uh, resolved, you cannot talk about what's coming next politically for the city. So. Yeah. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH and online at WGBH.org. I'm Callie Crossley, and we're talking about local news that went under the radar with Howard Manley of the Bay State Banner and journalist and media analyst Marcella Garcia. Uh, final button on the uh, Lawrence, uh, We Are Lawrence effort. Uh, they are using conventional public relations efforts. They've got a public relations guy <laughs> yes. uh, now involved, volunteering his yeah. efforts to turn this thing around. So uh, these people are fired up as uh, right. to borrow from Barack Obama <laughs> and ready to go. Ready to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Casino, maybe? Yeah. I don't know, but I'm well, just saying. That's the only thing that they need, please. I'm just saying. They're just firing back on, you know, right. on, on doing all of that. Okay, so, uh, Marcella, I just can't uh, let you go without noting that Chad Ochochina Cinco <laughs> is uh just been kicked off the the Patriots roster yeah, and the only reason I throw it to you is because I think a lot of people don't know that he changed his name from Chad Johnson to Chad Ochochinko uh because he was in honor of his Hispanic Heritage Month and he was giving tribute he's such an interesting <laughs> character and it's so sad to see him go not only because he brought this kind of like interesting uh, persona to the game. He was so active on Twitter. Like I cannot even tell Boston you. Boston was not ready for him. Oh, please. <laughs> please. He's moving on to, I don't even know where he's going. No, I don't but, think he knows either. Right, right. Yeah. But yeah. remember how we talked about here when he came, when he first was signed on how the only the, the, Lati- the only Latino player for the Patriots, Aaron Hernandez, gave him the name, the number of Chacinco because it was his. Uh, and so Chado Chacinco, which is 85, the right. number, he wanted to have the um, 85 number to go with his last name. So Aaron Hernandez gave it to him and, you know, he gave it up. I wonder if he's going to have it back now, Aaron <laughs> Hernandez. <laughs> but, know. yeah, it's kind of sad. He brought an interesting personality to to the Patriots uh, although he on the field he really didn't do much yeah. but something about the playbook I don't know what it, exactly it was but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well you know but he was interesting you know I, I thought Absolutely. he was an interesting character yeah. I like interesting characters so there you have it well all right. all right just had to make sure I got that in about Mr. <laughs> uh, Brother Chad and we'll I guess figure out what's going to happen to him <laughs> later we'll miss him follow on him Twitter. on Twitter yeah. Yeah. oh yeah. yeah definitely all right thanks you too all right, all right, all right. thank thanks, you Kelly. we've been talking news 
News with Howard Manley, executive editor of the Bay State Banner, and Marcella Garcia, journalist and media analyst. Thank you both for joining us. From local headlines, we turn to the latest pop culture headlines. You're listening to The Callie Crossley Show on 89.7 WGBH. program is on WGBH thanks to you and Greenberg Traurig, an international law firm with offices in Boston and more than 30 other cities worldwide, addressing the complex legal needs of businesses from startups to public companies. Global reach, local resources. GTLaw.com. And Bank of America. We know WGBH is important to our customers. Bob Gallery, Massachusetts President, Bank of America. Our commitment to Boston is as strong now as it's ever been, and our commitment to WGBH is as strong now as it's ever been, and I think that matters to our clients and to our associates, and we look forward to working with WGBH for many years to come. To learn more, visit WGBH.org slash sponsorship. All right, so let me ask a question. Why does this keep working? What would I have thought? Would I have believed it? To which one was it? What were you thinking when you saw this? The question that you just asked, Chad, is probably the wrong question. How do you know? Really? You literally? You do. And why are you there exactly? But what if you were good at it? And how did you meet her? What did they do? Is there something about their brains? Why? Why? Why would Why? Why would Why? 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 If you've got questions, the answer is Radio Lab. Saturday afternoon at 2 here on WGBH Radio. The WGBH Spring Auction has gone into extra innings. Bid to win sought-after gift certificates, home electronics, even Patriots tickets. You could even land an incredible getaway to Chicago, Greece, Jamaica, or any other JetBlue destination. And every winning bid helps WGBH hit it out of the park with more great programs. It's time for extra innings at auction.wgbh.org. If two heads are better than one, how about a hundred or a thousand? I'm Kara Miller. This week on Innovation Hub, we investigate the power of crowdsourcing. Saturday morning at 7 here on 89.7 WGBH. It's Ragtime, a look at popular culture, the salacious, the ridiculous, and everything in between. But this being public radio, we'll conduct our review with the help of some highbrow analysts, our pointy-head poobahs of pop culture, Thomas Connolly and Rachel Rubin. Thomas Connolly is a professor in the Department of English at Suffolk University. Rachel Rubin is the chair of the Department of American Studies at UMass Boston. Welcome, you two. Happy Friday. Yeah, it is. Happy Friday, and it's a beautiful day, too. Uh, It's going to be a beautiful day for a lot of kids soon because Disney has decided, taken a bold step to not sponsor its programming, of which there is a lot, uh, with uh, junk food. No more. Let's first hear what Disney has to say because Disney has taken a page out of Michelle Obama's book. Disney's Magic of Healthy Living. Try it. Part of living healthy means eating healthy, and sometimes that means you can try something new. There's a world of food out there, so let's eat! Today, we're here with celebrity chef Michael Simon and best-selling author Daphne Oz. And we're going to learn how to make an easy snack. Watermelon lime popsicles. Can't wait. There you have it, Rachel. Are you impressed? <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I hope it does some good. They did a cost-benefit analysis, right? Let's not kid ourselves. But I do think it is a step in the right direction. And next, I would like them to start thinking about all the princess stuff they're putting into girls' and boys' minds. Well, let's connect it all to that because I think some people will look at that as just strictly, uh, is this a you know government regulation versus a private company story? And, w- and when we are looking at it in terms of pop culture, 
the impact that Disney has I mean, cannot be overstated. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is like the company for which, you know, the, 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 the expression halo effect might have been um, invented. Um, Tom, so even the fact that if they just rep- take away all of that junk food programming, knowing that kids will not have that facing them every time they are enter into the Disney world. And I, as I said, it's, it's extensive. It, I, I think, you know, it, it can, it's, it can be a little Michelle Obama like anyway. Yes. <laughs> yes. One of the great conspiracy theories is the supposed secret meeting that took place between Disney, Microsoft and McDonald's in which they were going to divide up the entire world and provide every possible human need. Uh, this kind of upends that. But, you know, for years, uh, conglomerates have been getting into, you know, green food and, you know, supposedly organic food, and it's incredibly profitable. So, um, you know, I don't think this is so much, you know, the government at work as, you know, the hand of the market and, you know, hmm. benevolent or malignant. Um, I hope that it will have a good effect that, you know, kids watching those shows, although... You know, frankly, I don't see any benefit of watching Disney shows. Sorry, well, but yeah, okay. uh, I, the, the the overall impact, if anybody is is saved from you know eating fistfuls of corn syrup and processed you know flour, then there there, there will be some small good effect. Well, I think it. I, I'm going to say that I think it'll be larger than small in in this way because when they merchandise their stuff, the food that their little characters eat you know, was often junk food. They, that, that goes away now. So you have a double hit. Not only do you have the straight-out ads gone away, but all the sort of merchandising connections go away, too. I hope well, that's I think that true. There's also some confusion. Some people think that it's the parks that aren't going to be serving junk food anymore. Uh, oh, I, I see. I, oh. I heard the, there were some English people on, on a BBC program talking about how excited they were to finally be able to eat healthy at Disney World. And it's, it's as, as you mentioned, it's the Disney, the whole Disney World, not just the theme parks, that this will have an impact. So I think you have a point, Kelly. Yeah, and, and, and actually it's, it, the focus in, is it's definitely on the ads. So uh, since having dealt with my friend's child who knew the name of the princess and all of the details six months before the movie opened. I know how they no they market extremely oh, they well. Yeah. So to take that away, you know, she knew what food the princess ate. That princess's picture <laughs> you know. was on junk food in the <laughs> exactly. Smile. So that That's I right. mean, this say what you will, and it may be cynical or whatever. And the green food thing, uh, Tom, I think is an important one. By the way, we should mention that it doesn't go into effect until 2015. So there's a couple years in there between. But even one of their spokespersons, which I thought was interesting, said, with our new guidelines, some of our current material that we have said is healthier actually wouldn't fit. So that's pretty interesting. I mean, that's that's pretty big for a corporation. We'll see. Um, We lost a great one this week. Uh, Fahrenheit 451 author Ray Bradbury died at 91. I just love this piece about him, Tom. He never used a computer or wanted to or drove a car, and yet he That's was right. and futuristic. That's right, and even avoided airplanes until very late in his life. This, the, I think this, this uh, sums up uh, what makes Bradbury the extraordinary figure that he was and unfortunately is very much of a lost era, uh, a very much a humanist science fiction writer mm. uh, who's primarily concerned with the impact of other worlds or other forms of technology on the human being, rather than getting primarily caught up in the other or the the machine. Uh, people like Isaac Asimov and, and others who even were, were older than he was seemed to be much more interested in that. Even if, if you go back to the, the Czech writer who's considered one of the, the first of these kind of writers, Karl Chapek, he was writing about the dehumanization, but Bradbury is essentially optimistic and uh, eager for people to retain their their flesh and bloodedness, if you will. Yeah, uh, that's an interesting point. What do you think, Rachel? Um, well, he's he's it is true. His fiction is very very dark, and he actually rejected the term science fiction. Um, so I think it's probably better to say speculative fiction because he did work in a whole lot of different you know subgenres of that. Um, and yes, he he was he was very um, you know he was very worried about the the what it meant to have these two superpowers with nuclear capacity you know in 1950 um he was very worried about what unchecked market would mean and what um colonial 
colonialism would mean. Um, so I do think it's true that he wanted people to retain their humanness. And for that reason, so it's, it's a hard line to draw. For that reason, he did reject things that he felt could bring that dystopian imagined future closer. So, for example, that he said that about the Internet. That's why he didn't want to have anything to do with it. And I don't think any of his books ever appeared as e-books because, you know, so, yeah. I mean, it, it is nice to think of that as an optimism. Um, you could also think of it as a pessimism. And I, I just remember you mentioned Fahrenheit 451, and mm-hmm. I do think that's what he's most um, remember, going to be most remembered for. But for me, it was the Martian Chronicles. Mm-hmm. And the stories yeah. mm-hmm. in there, I just remember where I was when I read them as a kid and sort of figured out what they meant, you know, politically and historically. They were deep. Um, I I've just, never recovered from reading the Martian Chronicles. It, it had a huge. You impact can't. On me They're when I was dark a kid. and deep. <laughs> um, I, I just want to note that in, it wasn't until last year, the end of last year, 2011, that he his publisher, you know, pressed him about the ebook, and he finally let uh, Fahrenheit 451 uh, be an ebook. So can't just, burn it if it's an ebook. <laughs> yeah, I guess that's true. <laughs> there you go. Uh, so. I have to say that I'm always fascinated in the political world about the non-denial denial. And so here we have in our world of pop culture a giant uh, medical institution uh, coming forward to deny the existence (laughs) of, you know, people that are fictional. Anyway, uh, it's all about zombies. And uh, the CDC came out to say, really, there are no zombies. There's (laughs) no zombie apocalypse. It's not happening. It's not happening for real. The reaction is... Since they're saying this, it must be true. You know, it's a cover-up. Exactly. But I, uh, <laughs> Clearly, the CDC has never taught an 8 o'clock in the morning class. <laughs> <laughs> All right. got to let uh, Stephen Colbert uh, tell us what his take is on this. So here's Stephen Colbert uh, talking about zombies. Cannibalism is the hot new trend. <laughs> Folks, there is a terrifying new name for this horror. The zombie apocalypse. The zombie apocalypse. The possibility of a zombie apocalypse. O apocalipsis de los zombies. Apocalypsis de los zombies! <laughs> it's worse than we thought, folks. They're undead and after our jobs. Okay, so the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control, had to issue, issue an official reassurance that there was no zombie apocalypse. I Here's the quote. The CDC does not know of a virus or condition that would reanimate the dead or one that would present zombie-like symptoms. <laughs> Where have we gone, Tom? <laughs> well, it's also in response. Last year sometime there was, a, whether it was a prank or some serious 20-something at the CDC who really believed that zombie apocalypse was imminent, that it's a response to that that went something from the CDC that went viral. But, I mean, it's even on Game of Thrones now. You know, zombies are emerging out of the snow. Zombies are so important right now, and it's such a a troubling thing. These copycat horrific crimes that that have taken over the headlines are also, I think, part of the impetus for this. The people are reading about so many real crimes of cannibalism and and, uh, dismemberment that that perhaps someone at the CDC felt it was necessary to allay panic. But, uh, you know, since when is, you know, a, a fictional or, 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 or a imaginary creature reported on by a government agency. I don't know. I, to Tom's point, uh, Rachel, some suggest that people are, you know, worrying about these zombies because of their other fears. I think that's, well, mm. I think that's true. I mean, I guess you could say that government agencies have always been reassuring us that people haven't landed from other planets who, you know, <laughs> have it in for Earthlings. But I do, I think that this, you know, I mean, I don't think we have to take it literally for it to be a serious concern that people have. And, you know, we are on the tail end of, um, you know, a whole lot of years of zombie focus. And then if you add sort of vampires into the mix, you realize, hey, we're Using, we're using culture um, to keep telling ourselves stories about consuming that dangerous consumption, you know. And so it's hard not to see both the zombie um, craze and the vampire craze as people worried that consumerism has gotten out of hand. Mm. And, and the, the enemy within and the, the deadening of, you know, getting back to Bradbury, the, the deadening of our human traits and, you know, the, these, these villains and these demons being among us and we, we're not realizing it. Mm. I mean, also, yeah. you know, the flesh-eating bacteria diseases, the yeah. mad cow disease. That's you know, real. There are yeah. legitimate things to be afraid of. Right. But keep in mind, too, that George Romero's first zombie movie was um, set in a shopping mall. Wow. Interesting. 
Uh, we lost Richard Dawson uh, uh, this past uh, week, and Richard Dawson was the former host of the Family Feud. One of his uh, trademarks was kissing female contestants. Now, here's Richard Dawson explaining that he came up with this tactic after a nervous young girl uh, clammed up on the show when he asked her to name a green vegetable you can eat raw. Now, I'm going to do something that my mom would do to me whenever I had a problem of any kind. And I, I went like this, and I kissed her on the cheek. And I said, that's for luck. And she said, asparagus. Uh, he was it was he was funny and nice. Uh, it's, you know, it's the end of an era in a way. I... Totally the end of an era. That is what I mean. Despite the relevance, by the way, you know, the Wu Tang Clan saying uh, something like, "I start more." Feuds than Richard Dawson in a line that's with us. But, you know, there was, actually his kissing of the female contestants was considerably more lascivious than that little clip would indicate, unless you think too hard about asparagus. Um, and so <laughs> I do think that his passing does represent the end of an era. You can't quite get away with that anymore. At the same time, I remember it was like this huge scandal because he made a few tame jokes about Nixon on, on television, really? which I think now you could get away with more. Um, so you know there are just you know even his peer, the Hogan's Heroes sort of what what launched him mm. uh, a comic show about how funny it is in a Nazi prison camp that also seems like something that we're not doing right now so definitely I think marking a generation of television that's passed. Uh, well, Tom? other than the, other than the, the producers, but I, I can remember watching Dawson and thinking this is the most cynical, snarky guy I've ever seen on TV. I, I didn't think anything he was doing with what. Anything he was doing was sincere. And then at the end of his career, he comes out, you know, Mr. Sweetness and Light. I was just, you know, a lovey-dovey encourager of people. I mean, he married one of the contestants. But uh, it, it's interesting to me how, in retrospect, he's remade himself as this dear, you know, British chap. And yet I remember him as the host of The Running Man, that hmm. bizarre Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, which really was Dawson playing himself in sort of a uh, Hunger Games game show ahead of its time with adults going to the jungle to, you know, kill each other at uh, Dawson's urging. With the, with the, and the film had a very appropriate ending for, for Dawson. Wow, well, that's, that's the whole side of him. I, you know, I just didn't know about. But that's an that's interesting perspective. But in any case, uh, he's gone, and uh, that is definitely an end of a, of a certain kind of entertainment, uh, at least for this moment. Uh, so Oprah has decided to bring back something old, uh, something <laughs> tried and true. So here's what was happening. I was reading this book as a book, as a real book, holding up the book, and I was on the edge of my seat reading the book, and I was like, where is the Oprah Winfrey show when you need to announce and tell everybody about this book? I need the book club. So I created Book Club 2.0 for this book, Wild, by Cheryl Strayed. It is just uh, a wild ride of a read. Okay, so Tom, there you have her excitement, her enthusiasm. You're back to the book club. As you know, it was a huge success on The Oprah Winfrey Show, and now it's going online, certainly marrying with the times of, uh, of social media. Do you think it's going to be as successful? Not at all. The crucial thing is no more Oprah show. She has no definitive platform anymore. Um, you know, she can issue email alerts. She can, you know, appear here and there on television, but... Not having a regular television show and the dismal performance of her own network really makes this seem like a desperate ploy to get herself back on top, but without really going the distance of you know bringing back, putting herself back in front of the public all the time. I mean, there, there have been National Enquirer stories about how the board of OWN is, is throwing her out and that she's you know drowning herself in tequila. Uh, you know, I don't know, take that for what it's worth, but this is absolutely not going to, it, it hasn't worked so far. And uh, also it's different in that she's pushing, you know, the e-books, the Kindle and Nook things, which again, uh, her, it, it's contradicting her moving toward a limited demographic of people in uh, middle age or early uh, senior citizenship uh, who may not embrace the e-book the way that she wants them to. It just, it just seems a, a flawed technique and and not not doesn't bode well for her future so rachel you don't think that it, it's a way for her to embrace two of those demographics the older people that who like book books presumably and uh the young people who want to be online 
I think, I mean, the older, by the way, the older people who like books, particularly women, older mm. women, those are the ones who read books. Mm. You know, they read books overwhelmingly more than men um, or more than younger people. So, you know, even if it is that demographic, I don't know. It could work. I mean, it's completely fascinating to me. Um, and, you know, she's, she has gotten people to read Faulkner. So I mm. sort of feel like I'm coming in with like a lot of sort of confidence in her ability to put that over. And um, it's but it's fascinating to me, too, is just this reminder, if it does work, we'll be reminded that taste, how taste gets constructed, mm. you know, and that it isn't an absolute thing and that the sort of hierarchy of it is determined by these sort of outside factors. Um, I'll be watching with interest. But she couldn't. Her last two choices of uh, Tale of Two Cities and Great Expectations by Dickens didn't. It didn't work. And so that there's there's some thought that the the old book club 1.0 was done anyway. So this uh, is further evidence that this may not work. Well, when she first did it, I loved it because she would invite the author and invite readers, uh, and they would have a discussion around a dinner. That was fascinating to me. I yeah. loved those. Then she changed the format of it. I didn't like it so so much. So maybe she'll – I don't know how you do that online, but I, I have to she'll, say that I think she did very well with um, uh, one of those New Age guys that she loves uh, and put him online, and it went crazy. And that was – of course, she did have her show, as Tom points out, yeah. but it was all online. Well, it's within and the, I do remember. Anna Karenina all over the trolley and on, on the train. There I mean, it was go. extraordinary. And yeah. it's interesting. It's just really interesting to see, like, reading, the act of reading is, has been so radically redefined and, you know, be interesting to see how this, you know, how this shows those changes. All right. So fond memories of the drive-in, if people don't are listening who don't know what that is. It was, it was a movie. <laughs> you drove in in your car and it was on the big screen and you had your whole family and you you know, ate popcorn or bad other bad food, and it was a real interesting time. So this is the 79th anniversary. And I didn't know until now, Rachel, that it was the brainchild of a chemical company magnate, Richard M. Hollingshead, Jr. It's <laughs> completely fascinating, too, because you would get in your car, you would drive to the movies. It's now sort of, you know, uh, covered over with this nostalgia that we don't really choose to remember that the movies were bad. They were mostly B-movies and horror <laughs> movies and exploitation movies. And the sound was terrible, you know, but it was more, it was about something else, right? You could sort of drive somewhere and not ever even have to get out of your car. Yeah, well, and it was also family-oriented. Well, you got what, 15 uh, seconds, Tom. I saw Dr. Zhivago and Cleopatra and Lawrence of Arabia at the drive-in. I spent the first 10 years of my life at the drive-in. I didn't go to an indoor movie until I was 11 years old. And you did have to get out of the car to go to the concession stand. <laughs> but it really is I wasn't driving that at life. I mean, I think that's why people still do it and why it will continue to exist. People who want to live in their cars. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you very much, Tom Connolly and Rachel Rubin, for joining us for another edition of Red. Time. You can keep on top of the Callie Crossley show at WGBH.org slash Callie Crossley. Follow us on Twitter or become a fan of the Callie Crossley show on Facebook. Today's show was engineered by Alan Mattis, produced by Chelsea Murs, Will Roselip, and Abby Ruzica. Our intern is Sloan Paiva. The Callie Crossley show is a production of WGBH, Boston Public Radio. 